Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. All right, last thing just to share this morning is that uh, if you were here with us over the last couple weeks, you know that we are in a summer series looking at apologetics, looking at issues that relate to defending the Christian faith. So we're approaching some hot topics, uh, some pretty big issues that people struggle with as it relates to how can I believe in God in light of X issues. So last week, Mike did an awesome job of looking at the resurrection and proofs of the resurrection. And Scott, before that, had introduced us to this series. So today... We have the awesome joy and privilege of getting to hear another one of our interns preach for us. Uh, I want to welcome up Josh Rooney. Josh, you want to come up here with me? Josh has been an intern for us over this, uh, over this last semester. He's been working closely with Scott and I. Uh, he just graduated from Regent. He's looking to one day be a pastor. And so we're really excited that Josh is able to preach with us today. So can we welcome Josh now? Thank you. Um, like Nate said, um, I've been here for, I was just realizing, for probably over half a year, which has flown by really fast, but um, it's been a joy to meet many of you, um, as I still have people to get to know, but I um, want to thank you for welcoming me in and being hospitable. Um, it's made my time here. Um, I've really enjoyed it, and I appreciate you all. But in my time here as well, I've also seen uh, that not, or a lot of you are not unfamiliar with the experience of hardship. And many of you have shared your sorrows and your mourning and your times of grief. And at the same time, my heart is full because of the hope and joy that you still all demonstrate in your lives, despite your suffering. And that hope is Jesus. Um, the presence of this hope and joy in your hardship is a testimony to others in the community to people here in the gathering, and to me as well. And the reason this means so much to me is because in 2021, I and my family ourselves uh, experienced some trauma and hardship uh, when my mother unexpectedly died of um, complications due to the coronavirus in a matter of days. Um, my family held tightly to their faith and received a great abundance of support from the community and from one another. Uh, and our, yet in those times that they were the hardest, our only hope was Jesus' comfort and promises. And even a year and a half later, I'm still drawn by this topic of God's presence and involvement in our suffering because I myself have experienced his involvement in my life very richly during those times. However, since this is a topic about apologetics, this is also a real struggle in the theological and philosophical realm when many ask the question, how can God be good if there's still suffering in the world? And to begin with that, my first exposure to this question was with the author C.S. Lewis in his Problem of Pain. I'm just going to read a quote to you here um, that captures the idea of the problem of pain. He says, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy, therefore God lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain. Lewis himself dealt with some hardships with the loss of his mother and his wife, both of them in their mid-40s, and had a strained relationship with his father, 
Um, but the idea of what scholars have approached to this problem is called, a word for that is called theodicy, or one's attempt to explain how God can both be good and omnipotent or all-powerful in a world where evil exists. And Lewis isn't the only one who's attempted to approach this problem, but many theologians and scholars have attempted to approach this topic throughout history, um, reconciling the goodness and power of God amidst the presence of pain and suffering that each one of us experience at one point in our lives. For example, St. Augustine, um, a medieval theologian, he spent much of his life writing and wrestling over the problem of evil. But like many others, he did not attempt to necessarily solve the problem as much as develop a response to the presence of evil that we experience. I likewise will take a similar route. Um, but even in the Old Testament, all the way back, you see people like Job, who question why God has abandoned him in his worst time, or Habakkuk, who sees evil and asks God, are you being lazy? Do you not see this happening? So we'll get into some of that at some point. But I also recognize that we also ask these questions when we're in deep desperation and in the middle of pain and suffering, be it physical, mental sickness, separation from dear friends and family, processing the death of a loved one, losing everything you own. There are so many situations of loss in life that we can bring, us, bring even the strongest man and woman to a place of deep desperation. And in those moments, we too ask God, why? And in the text I've mentioned, God gives an answer. It just, it isn't the answer to the problem of evil that many anticipate. So before we engage all of that, I would like to pray us in. Um, Lord God, I ask that you would direct um, our hearts towards you in this moment, Lord. Um, let us cling to you in this moment. Jesus, um, fill us with your spirit and prepare us in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do we ask God why? Is it a feeling of betrayal? Is there an underlying assumption that since God is sovereign, it would be in his best interest to prevent suffering in our lives at all costs? Perhaps it is in those moments that hardship also challenge our faith. Atheists have attempted to use the logic of the problem of evil to address what they believe is a lack of God's presence or existence, since the problems they see is incoherence. And many scholars, like I said, have attempted to logically explain this. However, a problem arises when there's a difference between the theoretical and the practical. Timothy Keller, the late Timothy Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, writes, using the intellect to make some sense out of suffering is important, but it must be accompanied not merely with knowing about God, but with knowing God. In different various cultures as well, there are different narratives that people have um, built or leaned into over time to get through these moments of tragedy and suffering. However, Western culture seems to lack a clear story, um, or one at all, about suffering and tragedy, but rather sees suffering as an obstacle, uh, something that needs to be avoided and really has no end. It's just, there's no point to suffering. It's just something you experience. However, even those different narratives that have popped up through history, those seem insufficient compared to what we have from the Word of God. And I'll list four of these um, views right now that we, you may have heard of from different people or in different times, or I may believe that at some point in your life. But the first one is the moralistic view. The moralistic view is the belief that pain and suffering stem from our inability or failure to do what is right. 
For example, those who believe in karma are a good example of the moralistic view. The actions of one's past life or past lives, if they adhere to reincarnation, affects life in the future. Then there's also the self-transcendent view, which um, you see in Buddhism, which teaches the suffering, that suffering comes from unfulfilled desires. So in this view, one can fix their suffering by changing consciousness, extinguishing desire and individuality. The next view is fate and destiny. The fate and destiny is the belief that the events of life are set by ambiguous supernatural forces. And in many cultures, especially, for example, the Vikings, they valued one's ability to stand their ground in the face of hopeless odds. And that was the most valued. And then lastly, the dualistic narrative. That view is the belief that neither fate or God is in control, but there is a battle between forces of good and evil. And the sufferer is just a side casualty or a victim of this war. And this is a similar view to the belief that St. Augustine had himself before he was a Christian. But the question I want to ask before we delve into the texts is, why is Jesus' way better? And we'll return to that point. But first, in introducing what Scripture has to say about suffering and about God's character in that suffering, I'm going to start in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament and the New Testament um, have narratives, especially in the beginning, that give us important insights into the reality of suffering and the nature of human sin and death. And we'll begin in Genesis 3, which reveals the first tragic event when we see man and woman going from a place of close intimacy with God in the garden to an exile of separation from God because they chose what was right in their own eyes, a place we find ourselves in when we are tempted to sin. This would not only affect the man and the woman, but the, that affects, the effects of sin and death would affect humanity for generations, even to our generations, as all human beings have a tendency to sin and we all meet death at some point. The moment of the fall initiated what has become the suffering we experience today. And Paul even breaks down this reality in Romans 5, 12, which says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And this reality brings an interesting point or perspective to the problem of evil in that sin was introduced, sin and suffering were the introduction of the presence of evil and suffering where instead of where we automatically go to blame God for the introducing evil and suffering into our world. But in Genesis 3, we see even though man receives the consequences for sin, God's goodness is demonstrated through how he provides for the man and the woman by offering them clothing when they were naked. And he initiates the trajectory for what would be the reconciliation of human relationship with God. Let's fast forward a few generations, or quite a few generations, to uh, the story of Joseph. Over, in, over time in Genesis, we see as human sin and suffering becomes more prevalent in the world, um, we also see more and more of God's goodness as triumphant over those situations of suffering. In the story of Joseph, we see Jacob, who is Adam's descendant down, had 12 sons who would become the sons of Israel, and Jacob favored Joseph. His brothers knew that, and in their jealousy, they end up sending their brother into slavery. In that slavery, the Lord caused Joseph to bless the Egyptians until he was falsely accused of violating Potiphar's wife, who Potiphar was a high-ranking military officer there, and he was in prison. 
But even in thing after thing after thing, we see that the Lord uses Joseph in a way that would bless the other nations and to bless his family, that he would save the lives of him and his family as he was eventually put in a position of leadership where he would save the nations from severe famine. And the reason I mention this story is because a key principle, Joseph, when he acknowledges his brothers, says in Genesis 50, 20, you, the brothers, meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Again, there is an evident picture of God's provision for his people coming about through times of suffering and evil. God's goodness is demonstrated in transforming what is evil to a situation that is good. This is fundamental even to the creation account. If we go back to Genesis 1, as we see God taking what is formless and void, chaos, and bringing it to order and creating what is good. So in these passages, we see God's goodness, but what do we see about omnipotence in the Old, Old Testament? If God had the power to stop bad things from happening, why doesn't he? So I first go to Habakkuk. As I mentioned, in the midst of violence and injustice, the prophet Habakkuk asked God, why, why are you being lazy, God? You see the injustices here. Why are you doing nothing? And we see this in Habakkuk 1 when he says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry, or cry to you violence, and you will not save why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? This is God's response. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. Now in the context of the book, the Lord shares that he in fact is not being lazy or is unaware of what is happening, but has a plan and is doing a work to bring about justice to where there is injustice. It's not evident to Habakkuk's perspective that God was aware of or doing this justice. However, God reveals that it is in his timing he will bring justice, even when it is not readily apparent because of the limitations of our human perception. Another um, story that we all know, um, who is well known for deep hardship, is Job. And just a brief summary to introduce the story. In the accuser or the Satan's attempt to cause Job to curse God, Job loses his property, his livestock, and his children all at once. Job experienced painful illness. His wife pressured him to curse God. Job's own friends, in their attempt to comfort him, gave him wrong advice. A mistake that sometimes we make when we're not ready to approach the difficult um, subject of suffering. His friends blamed Job for his suffering as a result of moral failure. And we talked about that as the moral view, uh, moralistic view. And in the response to his friends, he says, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my errors remains with myself. There is a time when Job enters deep and bitter complaint. He complains to God, God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you did not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. When I hoped for good, evil came, and when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and are never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. Job's expectations were crushed. 
He expected good and finds evil. He expects God to rescue him, but receives affliction. He is emotionally distraught and becomes confused about God's justice. But eventually God answers Job and reveals that Job's friends were very wrong, and God condemns them. Even though they claimed it was unrighteousness that caused Job's suffering, in fact, God pointed out at the very beginning of the story, describing Job as a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God spoke to Job, saying, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who shut in the sea with doors? Have you commanded the morning since the days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Do you know the ordinances of heavens? Can you establish their rule, and their, their rule on the earth? He who argues with God, let him answer it. In a very detailed manner, the, those few chapters, God demonstrates his justice and goodness and omnipotence in how he orders the universe and all of creation. Now God asks Job to trust him, and in humility, Job acknowledges his omnipotence, saying, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God calls those who fear him to trust in his infinite wisdom, even when it doesn't seem clear. And Paul states a principle in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, saying, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have fully been known. And in other words, concerning the topic that's being addressed here, we have the hope that we will soon have a more full and intimate understanding of the things of God. That we may only, that the things now that we only have a glimpse of because our eyes are a bit blurred in the present time. Now, surprisingly, even though the book of Job is known very much for suffering, it doesn't necessarily answer the problem why good people suffer. However, it still provides insight into suffering and God's justice. Our human perspective is not like God's, like I said in the last story. It is not wide enough to grasp the full context and meaning of our suffering. Therefore, limits us from making a sound judgment or accusation against God and his justice. In other words, the problem of evil is a mystery that remains in the heart of God. At this point in the story, we live in a complex world, this story as in the story of God. Um, since the fall, we've been, the world has been filled with suffering. However, we know clearly that God is just, he is good, and he is powerful and all-knowing from these stories. Now, this idea can be uncomfortable that this problem of evil remains in, in part a mystery, um, because we just want to know, what is the logical meaning of suffering? But this is not what God had intended for us to know. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to others who accuse God of this incoherence, when in fact the Bible is full of mysteries, of paradoxes? The last Old Testament reference I want to go through um, briefly is uh, Psalm 16. Um, David wrote poetically about his sorrows, but all kinds of different emotions he had about his relationship with the Lord. And I'll read Psalm 16 here. It should be on the screen, uh, parts of it. It says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The, sorrow of the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. In a paraphrase, I will not take part in this, is what David says. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. 
I have set the Lord always before me, therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. There is much to unpack here, um, but I'm going to point out parts that I feel like are very relevant to understanding this idea of how to respond to suffering in, in David's perspective. So first, there is a shift in the passage. If we're going from the beginning where David says, preserve me, there seems to be some turmoil. Um, he goes from a place where of turmoil, turmoil to a place of confidence in his dependence upon the Lord. But what causes this transition? One, David has a hope in three blessings of provision from the Lord that sustain him in the moments of hardship. So we see that David has hope in, that he has a part of an inheritance. But this isn't just any inheritance like money or land. He says his inheritance is the Lord. He has the trust and hope that in the Lord, out of everything he wants or needs, his relationship with God will, be, will bring fullness of satisfaction. David also expresses confidence in that always, he will always receive guidance from the Lord. He does not have to endure these sufferings alone, but the Lord is present with him, providing guidance during the day and during the night. Lastly, David also expresses confidence in the preservation or security he finds in the Lord. From the beginning of the passage where he says, Lord, I take refuge to you, where, where he exclaims at the end, you will not abandon my soul in Sheol or the deep. Not even death decrease, decreases the confidence he has in the Lord because he has hope in death, or his, because he has hope that death is not the end. Now, if we transition to the New Testament, there's another shift. We see Jesus beautifully demonstrates the goodness, the power, the presence, and the love of God through his sacrifice and his resurrection, as we spoke of last week. How specifically does Jesus bring healing, though, to suffering through his sacrifice? I'll start in Acts. Acts 2, when the apostle Peter preaches at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell on the believers and filled them and led them to speak in tongues in other people's languages. And in his sermon, Peter's sermon after that, he quotes Psalm 16, what we just read. He says, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. However, Peter also makes an observation. He says, David's been long gone. He's been dead and buried. But he also wasn't wrong because he was a prophet. And he trusted that the promise that God gave him, that he would put a descendant on his throne, would come about. So yes, David is dead, but Jesus' resurrection enables the fulfillment of this promise as he was dead and was raised and was not left to decay. But how does this affect us as well? Well, we have the promises and the benefits of the resurrection as Mike went into last week. Um, but one verse I want to mention is Romans 8.11 that says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Through his suffering, Jesus rescues us from our bondage to sin and death, and he offers us life. We experience this life now as we presently see the spirit transform us, killing our old habits, our old selves, and leading us to desiring and pursuing our life in Christ, becoming more like him. And the best illustration that I can think of to picture this is what happens at baptism. What's demonstrated at baptism is when you are baptized, it's sometimes said out loud, 
um, before or during when individual is merged with water is they are buried with Christ in his death and raised in newness of life. In that, our life becomes united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So Jesus brings redemption to us through his suffering. But Jesus' suffering also brings hope. Hope that we presently experience and hope that we look forward to. Suffering is not the end. If we look at some verses in, that Paul wrote, um, Philippians 2 says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Likewise, Paul writes in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. In our suffering, we have the hope of a great inheritance because we, as believers, are God's children. Through our suffering in Christ, we are co-heirs in Christ. And at the same time, we are not alone in our suffering. So Jesus, through his suffering, is a redemption. He brings us hope, and we're not alone because we suffer with Christ. Again, I ask the question, why is Jesus' why is Jesus's way better than any uh, other worldviews attempt to reconcile the existence of suffering in the world? Out of any solution that the world could come up with, to make sense of the evil and suffering in the world, Jesus' way transcends all, and in that instead of merely explaining why evil exists, he jumped into the experience the, to experience the most excruciating suffering and evil, rescuing us from our sin and giving present hope in the midst of suffering. And future hope that we in him would suffer no more as we excitedly wait for his return. Even today, he is at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for us, as we see in Romans 8. So, is it wrong to ask God why in those moments of desperation? As Nate and Mike have said in their messages, it's not wrong to experience doubt and to wrestle with doubt in those moments that our faith is tested. However, what we do with that is very important. So rather than just leaving that doubt and not touching it and just remaining in that doubt, it's important to lean into those questions with honesty which may also enable us opportunities to learn about our relationship with God and learn about ourselves and who God is. Most importantly, it is important to, when we lean, have these moments to lean into Jesus and not into other idols, even if those other things seem to cause sufficient relief. The only one who will truly satisfy you, provide confidence and hope, is Jesus. These moments challenge our faith, but also, depending on our response, refine and strengthen the durability of our faith, stronger than we could ever imagine or muster in our, on our own terms. And an illustration I want to use, there's, in, again, in Tim Keller's book, there's a, a dialogue that he does between um, a couple, Martha and Mark. And I thought um, their testimony, was, uh, I wanted to share that um, as a demonstration because they hit a lot of the points and the principles um, that I've mentioned today, but in real practice in their experience. 
Um, but the, t- the story goes, or the title is Life Story, The Sweetness of Life with God. It begins with Martha, who says, As my husband, Mark, sits in his wheelchair, unable to move anything by his eyes, and that being increasingly difficult, we are approaching the 10-year point in our journey. It began with a small muscle twitch when Mark was 48 years old, and within a month, our doctor diagnosed the cause as the terminal illness ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. We had been married 25 years and had four children. We had always been an active family, so Mark's quick physical demise was devastating. When Mark got sick, I fell into a black hole of despair. I didn't know how I was going to live through the pain of the coming days. I asked all my friends to pray that the fear of tomorrow would not rob me of the joy of today because I was struggling. I wondered, who am I if I am not Mark's wife? Today, I understand the idolatry in that statement and why the despair was so deep. I had identified most deeply with Mark as my husband and provider. In my eyes, I had put him before God. How I moved out of despair is a mystery. I had no awareness of being called forth, yet I experienced a sense of resurrection during those early days. Mark and I quoted every verse we could think of about God's care. We attempted to find ways to beat into our hearts the love and faithfulness of God. We planted our feet in the truth we understand, even though everything in our lives seemed otherwise. This is Mark, who's speaking, uh, writing through a computer that captures eye movements. I played sports in the younger years, and I always hated sitting on the bench. One day, just after my diagnosis, I cried out to God that I thought I was being pulled out of the game when I still had something to offer. His response was, you have been on the sidelines for some times. You are just now going into the game. Hanging on to the truth that God is doing much that I can see, or can't see, and that in his economy it is worth the suffering, but it is also a daily exercise of faith. The body of Christ moved in our lives in very tangible ways. Friends helped with meals, gave gift cards, did yard work, planned birthday parties for our kids, came and were just present. Even 10 years into the journey, we still have many people reaching out to us in support and strength and love. Then we transition back to Martha speaking. There were so many things at the beginning that I didn't think I could live through emotionally. One of those was picking a place to bury Mark. My daughters and I went one day to find a place. There was a tenderness between us and even laughter. I sensed God saying to, saying to me, I'm here. In all those places you don't think you'll be able to face, I will be there. It was a day of significance in sensing his presence with me. Not just that day, but for everything that lay ahead. Mark says, I have found that singing hymns and African-American spirituals in my head because I have not been able to speak for the last eight years, has, it, those things have been helpful. Many hymns are about suffering and speak deeply to my need for a sense of his presence with me in the midst of my pain. These hymns are treasures that modern Christian music doesn't even approach, some of the best reminders that this world and its troubles is not our true home. Recently, I have been diagnosed with a terminal liver disease. Sometimes I say that I am unfairly just suffering, but the only one who went through suffering unfairly was Jesus. His separation from the Father on the cross is far beyond anything I could ever experience. How can I complain when he went through the cosmic pain for me? 
I remember Tim Keller relating the story of a man who was terminally ill and who told him that the sweetness of life with God, as a result of his illness, he wouldn't trade for more than years. I found that to be true in my life as well. Then lastly, Martha says, we have found meaning, purpose, joy, growth, and wholeness in our loss. How much I would have missed if I had opted out of this season. God has so much to give me in the midst of him. I see how intense sorrow and intense sweetness are mingled together. The depth and richness of life has come in suffering. How much I have learned and how much sweeter Jesus is to me now. It's a powerful story. Uh, another quote that I think match or correlates with this is, um, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. We will not always have the answer to the questions of, about our suffering, but we know that God is present with us in our suffering. The Lord brings strength in our suffering for where there is need, and in fact, He is our strength in our suffering. Suffering is not merely an obstacle or a pointless event that occurs in your life, nor is it a hopeless end. Our suffering can strengthen our faith, and we have hope of a future inheritance we have in Christ for those who believe. But what now? How can we live these truths in practice the way Jesus, I practice the way of Jesus in our communities? And the bank can come up as well. Um, a couple things I came up with um, besides what the Spirit could be speaking to at this moment is that I encourage you all to support one another in difficult times and remind one another of the reality that God is present with us in our suffering. Your presence with somebody, somebody in hardship may reflect the loving, compassionate, and powerful presence of God in those moments of weakness. And even your testimony of your experiences of suffering can strengthen and encourage those who are in the midst of trial, providing a wider perspective than the bad things that are right in front of their face. For those who are dealing with doubts and wrestling, do not merely settle for the question why, but be honest about those questions and feelings you experience when life changes, when traumatic and difficult events occur. Wrestle through them. Martin Luther called this practice tentatio. It's uh, basically the wrestling of the believer um, when the Word of God intersects with our world. Um, in other words, when trial or temptations are introduced by the devil in an attempt to thwart the believer's growth in Christ, um, these moments can strengthen our trust and reliance on the Lord and lead us to experience God's presence and to learn more about ourselves and who we are in Christ. And then lastly, in these next moments of worship, I encourage you, um, if you have some wrestling to do or have questions to ask, I encourage you to use this time to pray and to share this, these with God and ask Him for guidance for where there is need. Now let's pray. Lord God, Help us to lean into you. You are our hope. You bring life. And we are thankful for you. We are thankful for your spirit who fills us and leads us, that we are not alone in our suffering. That you are with us. Heal our hearts, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.